But when it comes to our life, uh, the lives that you and I live and really the routines that we go through, so much in life is designed to numb our spiritual senses into thinking that this life is all there is. There's the daily grind that you and I go through. There's the routine. There's the calendar. There's kind of the mundane. There's the, if, especially if you're a parent with a small little one, your life is very systematic and very routine with, with things and on how much time you do or don't have for other things. Um, if you're in business, I'm sure that there's a number of things that your schedule is very systematic on, places you need to be, appointments you need to keep, uh, meetings that you need to have. But there's so much in life that is just focused on the, the routine and the grind of life that as a follower of Jesus Christ, sometimes it can, that, that routine can numb our spiritual senses into forgetting that this life, the natural life, is not the primary life that we're focused to live upon. So often we go through life thinking about the natural life and the natural things that we face and our natural responses to things, our natural solutions to things. And as a follower of Christ, we easily make this life our primary focus and the supernatural quality of our life the secondary focus. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I have to realize that our primary focus and our primary emphasis is on the supernatural quality, the the spiritual quality of who we are, secondary is the natural life in which we live, that the Christian life is supernatural in nature. What I'd like for for you to do with me this morning is to look at a passage in scripture that I think highlights the importance of this, of understanding the supernatural quality and impact in life. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And not only will it help us see that topic that I'm mentioning, but it also will help us see the importance of prayer and fasting when it comes to tuning our hearts into hearing God's voice and recognizing how he wants to work in our lives and in the circumstances that we're facing. The story is found in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, really, most of the chapter, the first 30 verses, talk about the, the, the story, the event, the incident that takes place. This morning, I won't read the entire story, but we'll look at some sections that I want to highlight and some things that we can talk about. Um, I encourage you, if you have your Bible, you can open up on version and you can follow along in the live notes that's there. But as you're turning to Second Chronicles chapter 20, just to give you the background, we're looking at the nation of Israel. And if you're not really familiar with kind of the history of the nation of Israel, leading up to Christmas, we talked about King David. King David was probably one of the more prominent kings in the nation of Israel, uh, an individual who really put the nation on the map, that God used him in powerful ways. And God made the promise to King David that his generations, his family would always be the head. They would be the, the leadership of the nation of Israel. But one of the things that we see, and this is so often true when it comes to the blessings and the promises of God upon our lives, that while he grants them to us, it also comes with obligations and responsibilities to walk within those, the parameters of those blessings that God has upon our lives. So in other words, it's not just a matter of because we receive grace, we can live however we want or do whatever we want, but rather it's transformational in our lives. It's transformational in our living. It changes how we think. It changes how we act. It changes the lifestyles in which we live. King David did his best to honor God in his life. He made some pretty major blunders. We looked at those. One of the key things that we see in the blunders and the failures of David is a heart that was very quick to turn in repentance back to God and to turn back to him. And so God made this promise to King David that he would establish his family uh, as as the kings, as as the primary leaders of the nation of Israel. Just one generation removed from, from King David, his son, King Saul, comes to the throne. And King Saul, if you're familiar with the story, um, God grants him the, the, the request for wisdom. King Sol- Solomon rules with great wisdom. 
over the nation of Israel, but his heart begins to be led astray by the number of wives that he's made, many of them out of treaties and alliances with other nations. And so as his heart begins to be led astray, God sends a prophet and confronts him and really recognizes that after Solomon, he's honoring David's prom, his promise to David, he leaves Solomon on the throne. But as soon as Solomon dies, that God is going to split the kingdom. And so the, the kingdom splits because of sin and failure and compromise and turning their back on God. And the nation of Israel now becomes two nations and two kingdoms. One is called the nation of Israel, and, and by and large, what we see in the nation of Israel, their pattern is, is whichever way the king was leading was the direction the nation was going. More times than not, the nation of Israel had an ungodly king who lived with compromise, uh, who lived with sin, who lived with open rebellion before God. And so we see that God in his patience sent prophet after prophet to draw their hearts back to him. But God ultimately, not only in his patience, but in his goodness and his love, brought them to a place of brokenness to see their need for him, and they were led into exile. The nation of Judah, by and large, if you could say between the two, the nation of Judah had a heart more trained and turned towards God, not completely and always accurate, but more times than not, the king on the throne in Judah was more prone to lead the people to the nation, to the, to turning towards God than turning towards idols. But eventually the idolatry of the hearts in the nation of, of Judah caught up with the nation on the outside, and that really became the form and practice in which they lived and compromise, and God too brought judgment on the nation of Judah. And so it's with that background we see that Jehoshaphat is the, the current standing king in the nation of Judah. And the, Jehoshaphat is a king whose heart is turned primarily towards God, primarily towards leaning towards God and leaning towards him. And although he was not a perfect king, he did look towards God in all things. And I want to see you, show you one account in Scripture in First Chronicles chapter 20. That helps us get a picture of his dependence upon God and looking to him. Let's read the first four verses together. Verse number one. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazizon, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. The first thing I just want you to see in this story when it comes to Jehoshaphat and these armies that he's facing that really gives us a picture is that we're in a spiritual battle with a very real enemy. That we're, we live in, in our lives as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are in a battle and we're facing a very real enemy. King Jehoshaphat gets this word and it really becomes the, the largest threat that he faces as he reigns as king in Judah. He faces, he receives this message that three armies, three kingdoms have united to come against him and to wage war against him. And not only does he receive word that they, are, they have come together to come against him, he finds out in verse 2 that they're already in the land. Verse 2 says, it says that a vast army has come and that is, they are already in Engedi. Now, Engedi from Jerusalem, where Jehoshaphat is at, is a distance of about 14 hours by foot. Uh, that would be the distance, to put it in perspective of today, it'd probably be the distance roughly about from here to Altoona. And so it's not that he's just heard this story that these three kings have come together and there's some distant land and eventually months and months of traveling they're going to get here. But they have been working and their, their journey has been kept secret and they've already arrived in the land 
They're about a day's travel away from him, maybe two days at most, ready to wage war against him. Not only are they in a, a close distance and they, that they're already prepared and ready to come and to take him out, but the army that is not only close, the messenger says, look what this messenger says in verse 2. He says, it's a vast army. Some translations would say a vast multitude. There's times in scripture when we see that the army is coming against the nation of Israel or coming against somebody and they're described as not just being a vast multitude, but it really describes them. It says you can, if you could count the numbers of sand on the seashore, that's how you would count this army. Then we get this picture that it's a mass multitude coming against Jehoshaphat and coming against the nation of Israel. And the point that I want you to see in this is that In all of this, even though Jehoshaphat was not aware of it at the time, until he finally received this word that the enemy was close and that the enemy was vast, the enemy was already working and scheming and positioning himself to throw his full might at Jehoshaphat to crush him, even before Jehoshaphat was aware that they were there. That the enemy was already scheming, was already working against him, but long before he was aware of it. See, the Bible makes it very clear to you and to me that we face a very real adversary in this world. If you can think of the enemies you've faced, the obstacles you've faced, the challenges you've faced this past year, perhaps the hardships you've faced or the difficult people you've faced, if you could take all of those hardships and you could ball them together into, into one specific thing, it still would not be in size or comparison to the very real enemy that the Bible says is, is scheming against you. Look with me in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Verses 11 and 12, we, we looked at this verse very briefly as we studied the life of David leading up to Christmas. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul is talking about our very real enemy, the devil, and how he is scheming against us. And he says this, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you look in verse 11 once again, it says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, it says schemes, some other passages might say in stratagems. What it's talking about is these, not just these casual plans to ruin your day or these casual plans to make you have a bad attitude or these casual plans to give you a flat tire and make you late. What the, what the Bible's talking about when the enemy is scheming against you, his schemes and his strategies, we're talking about a large-scale systematic plot, a secret plan to overthrow you, a secret ma- plan to undermine you. See, the enemy would love to do nothing more than to destroy you, to take out your life, to take out your joy, to take out your hope, to, to crush anything and every work of God in your life. That's the enemy's plan. That's what the enemy aims to do in your life. And the Bible says in in Ephesians 6, we look at verse 11 and verse 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world. When he says rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, it's very easy to think that Paul is talking in picturesque ways, trying to describe this one thing and trying to just paint this broad picture with all of these different terms. But most experts would agree and say that when, when, when Paul writes and says that there's rulers, there's authorities, and there's powers in this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, says what he's really describing is not just using a bunch of names to describe the same thing, but rather what Paul is doing is he's describing this, this hierarchy of the enemy. 
this strategy, this ranking of the enemy army. And the point is that the enemy is scheming, he is strategizing, he is plotting to overthrow you and everything good that God has brought into your life. That is his aim and that is his goal. And I believe that one of the more subtle tactics that the enemy would use against us it's not going to necessarily be the blatant and open sin and the blatant and open temptation. We talked about the, the, the subtle tactic of unforgiveness and bitterness and how he works in. We looked at that leading up to Christmas and the life of David. But another tactic of the enemy that I believe is, is even more subtle is that he tries to get us to focus on the wrong things. He tries to get us to spend our time and our energy and our effort on the wrong things. What we see in the story with King Jehoshaphat is when the army comes, we don't see him immediately running around and trying to solve the problem in his natural strength. What we see is immediately Jehoshaphat realizes that this physical army coming against him was really needing a supernatural answer. That he wasn't focused upon just the natural response, but rather he was focused upon the supernatural response. More times than not, you and I are in a fight before we even realize we're in a fight. There have been times in my home with my wife and I as we parent together and we just pray together over our kids that we will look and we'll see things. And my wife is far more keen at recognizing this than I am. But we'll deal with an issue over here. We'll deal with something else over here. We'll deal with another thing and all these little things and, and, and what we might would describe as being frustrations or an off day or something. And over time, we'll begin to see this pattern. And my wife will finally point it out and she'll say, you know, I don't think it's happenstance that so-and-so is dealing with this and so-and-so is dealing with that and so-and-so is discouraged in this area and all of these things. She says, what we need to recognize is the spiritual root behind all of this and the work of the enemy in this and really that we, we no longer focus on the wrong thing, but rather that we look to God. So Jehoshaphat recognized that this was a super, he needed a supernatural answer to his problem. And so he immediately looked to God. And as I mentioned, it's so easy to get focused on the physical things around us and the physical issues and the physical responses. I've had times in my life when I have felt God prompting me and I, and I really won't have a reason or a, a, a why behind it, but I'll feel prompted to spend a, a few days in prayer and fasting. And so I'll just start the week and, and having some prayer and fasting the first few days. And then when I get to midweek and I'm wrapping up the fast, something will come my way and I'll realize, I'll look back and I realize God was prompting me back then to prepare me and to ready me for this obstacle that I'm going to be facing today. And if I had just, if I had just blown it off and said, I don't want to do this, then I would not be ready to recognize the spiritual roots and the issue of what I'm facing. See, the devil will always throw things at us to get us to focus on the wrong thing. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, the verse we looked at, he says, we have to remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that there are things in your life right now. There are battles that you've been facing. There are situations and obstacles that have been in your path all through 2019 and you find them in your path in 2020. There are circumstances, there are needs, there are answers that you're looking for. And that so often as we've been, you've been trying to solve it, it could be something in your marriage, it could be something in your parenting, it could be something in your schooling, it could be in relationships, it could be in your home, it could be in your workplace, that rather than looking for the spiritual answer, you've been looking for the natural one. You've been trying to solve a supernatural issue with a natural response. We will see in the story that as God begins to move on the heart of Jehoshaphat and they begin to respond and bow their hearts to God in prayer, that God routes the enemy as Jehoshaphat moves in faith. 
But it all started with recognizing the issue was spiritual in nature and not just natural. The second thing that I want you to see, we see with Jehoshaphat, is not only was, was he facing a very real enemy, but Jehoshaphat highlights for us that our response is crucial. How we choose to respond is crucial. Look in verse 3. I would love to read verses 3 through 13. This kind of covers Jehoshaphat's prayer among the people, beginning in verse number 3. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or the plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. I love that confidence. He says, I will stand before you knowing that you will hear and that you will answer. Look in verse 10. But now here are the men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came to Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive, out, drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood before the Lord. It says that Jehoshaphat is alarmed. Look in verse 3 again. It says Jehoshaphat says he's alarmed. The New King James Version says Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to see the Lord. I want to put, encourage you to put yourself in Jehoshaphat's shoes. Jehoshaphat is a real person, a real man like you and me, facing real issues, real challenges, has real loved ones, a real home, a real place. And he hears of someone coming to completely take him out and destroy him. But he's, he's human. And if you were to think about all of the fears and thoughts that would be going through his mind and the feelings as soon as he gets this word that these three, three armies have merged and are now on his doorstep. Listen to some of the thoughts that I'm sure went through his mind. And in each one, you can hear the whisper of the enemy. It says, you're so weak. The enemy is so big. Your plan is so foolish. You don't even know what you're going to do. You are so underqualified for this moment. Your strength is too small. Your people are too cowardly. Your action is too late. Your enemy is too close. And on and on and on, the excuses and the fears and the doubts could have been. The enemy whispered in Jehoshaphat's ear, just like he whispers in your ear. Whenever the opportunity comes, he will always highlight our fears and our failures and our insecurities. And he will always highlight them and push them into the front of your face. But I love what Jehoshaphat did in response to that. That he would have had all of those fears, all of those insecurities, all of those feelings that Jehoshaphat chose to move in faith rather than fear. In other words, Jehoshaphat chose to not let his emotions dictate his actions 
or response. Instead, he went to God. And just like Jehoshaphat, we must choose to set our perspective off of who God is rather than the situation and the challenge and the need that you might be facing. Taking action towards a God who has always proven himself faithful and always proven himself to come through. So there's three things that happened with Jehoshaphat that I just want to highlight very briefly this morning uh, in his actions that I think we can apply and grow from. Uh, There are things that I would love to see us as a church family grow in in the year 220 that we could just grow in in our lives individually and we could grow in as a church uh, corporately. And the three things that we see in Jehoshaphat's response is number one, a commitment to prayer. The second one is a commitment to scripture. And the third one is a commitment to worship. So let's look at these briefly. The first one is a commitment to prayer. Look in verse three once again. It says, verse three, alarmed Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. It says that he resolved to seek the Lord. When we say that we resolve to do something, it means that we firmly determine to do something. It means that we choose to not be deterred or swayed. It means to set our mind and our action and our face towards it. I think many times our greatest hindrances to hearing from God and getting answers to the prayers that we present to him and the needs that we're facing, that many times the greatest lack is the resolve to hear from him. It could be a phone that chimes. It could be a text that comes through. It could be a social media post. It could be the passing of time. It could be the fact that your mind is wandering. It could be any number of things. But most often we lack the resolve to really push through and linger and listen for what it is that God would bring about. If you look later in the story, it says that they they stood there. Verse 13, it says that people just stood there. They prayed and then they stood there expecting God to answer. They prayed and their resolve was to not leave the place until God came through and answered in some way. Not only does verse 13 say that they all stood there, but it says they all came together, young and old alike, men and women. They were all engaged and they were all actively seeking God. I think one of the great commitments to prayer and and commitment to resolve that you and I can have in 220, in the year 220 is this coming year is recognizing that when it comes to moving in prayer, there are times that my wife, that I'll be praying over something and my wife and I will join together in prayer on something. And there's times we engage the kids in, in it. That we just recognize the importance of this resolve and this seeking the face of God together and pursuing him and looking for his answers and looking for his breakthrough. I think so often you and I underestimate, or rather we overestimate what we can do in our own strength and wisdom and we underestimate what God can do through prayer. We overestimate what we are able to do in our own ability. We overestimate our own wisdom. We overestimate our own response. We overestimate our own action. And we underestimate what it is that God is capable of doing through prayer as we bow our hearts before him. But when it comes to prayer, the best way for you and I to look at it is recognizing that prayer is an entry point for God to work in any situation. It's an invitation for him to be our solution. Prayer is a place where we come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of our answers. We come to the end of our wisdom. We come to the end of our solution. We come to the end of everything that we try to present to solve an issue. And it's coming before God and inviting him to be our solution. It's inviting him to be our answer. Not our second or third or fourth plan, but rather our first plan that we look to him. Part of Jehoshaphat's resolve in as a congregation, as a church, as a, as a as a community, was they gathered together, not only prayed, but they fasted. 
says they gathered together and they fasted. He declared a public fast for all of God's people. And that's what we're doing next week, that we are declaring a public fast for us as a church family to be a part. If you look in the, the lobby, there is a prayer and fasting guide. And it's something that we, we lay out and it just gives some ideas, some general directions on uh, how to be, how you can participate in the fast. It gives some uh, just idea starters, some things to set aside, different patterns and ways to do it. It does encourage you to be mindful of what your dietary restrictions are, being aware uh, with your doctor of perhaps areas and things that you, sh- you need to say on, things that you, you should avoid. Um, but in addition to that, what I always encourage individuals when it comes to a biblical fast, you know, we, we live in a day and age where there's so much that demands our attention. And when we look at a biblical model for fasting, a biblical model for fasting is not necessarily setting aside Mountain Dew or a candy bar or uh, or Netflix. Those are that's not necessarily a biblical fast. A biblical fast has as its core denying our most basic appetite, which is our appetite for food, our appetite for substance. So we encourage you to set aside something out of your diet, but then we do encourage you because the goal of of prayer and fasting is to set aside our focus from one thing and put our focus on another, upon our Heavenly Father, we encourage you to, in addition to setting aside some sort of form of food or, or, or modifying how your eating schedule and recognizing the guide in the lobby, we encourage you to also find a way to disconnect from some level of, of media or technology that's so easy to crowd our minds and clutter our hearts from truly hearing God's voice with clarity. But what the Bible teaches us that when God's people humble themselves before him in prayer and fasting together, that it produces powerful results. It produces powerful results that when it comes to prayer, one of the greatest things is realizing is prayer and fasting. It's never about trying to get more of God's attention. It's never about trying to catch his eye so he answers the prayer that we need answered or that we catch his eye to get the solution to what we're looking for. Prayer and fasting is not so much about me getting God's attention, but it's more about me getting my attention on him, getting my focus completely upon him. And so our intent is to disconnect from all the things that would distract and focus more upon him. And my desire for us as a church is that we, when we end our 21 days of prayer and fasting together, that we're not just a few pounds lighter and craving foods that we haven't eaten in three weeks, but that we would emerge lighter in spirit and more focused in mindset uh, and, and in tune to how God would be leading and how he's working in our hearts, in our lives with a fresh craving and a desire for more of him. We see in scripture and, and we even see it in the story that we've looked at today that God always moves through a people who are, who are emptied of themselves and dependent and humble upon him. In the story, we see that when, when God does answer the prayer that they've presented, it's in verse 14, he answers through a man named Jehaziel. And it says that in verse 14, it says the spirit came upon Jehaziel and he began to speak this, this word of direction and guidance. But in the more literal reading, it's not so much that the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit came upon him, but rather what it says, it says the Holy Spirit clothed himself with Jehaziel. It's like the Holy Spirit put on this individual. In other words, this individual was so surrendered and abandoned of self and focused upon God that God could fill him with his spirit and use him to speak prophetically to those who had gathered. The second thing that we see with Jehoshaphat when it comes to his response to this issue and the obstacle that he was facing, the first one was a deep commitment and a resolve to pray and to fast. The second thing we see when it comes to Jehoshaphat was that he had a deep commitment to God's word. 
he had a deep commitment to God's word, to scripture. And Jehoshaphat's prayer, if you read through his prayer, and we've read it through this morning, if you look at his prayer, you'll see that it is full of promises from past scriptures that are tucked in there. That he's really holding God to his word and presenting God's word back, not only to, to build his faith, but also to remind and put in front of God, God, this is how you act. This is your promise. This is who you are. There's really a parallel between Jehoshaphat's prayer and the prayer that Solomon prayed earlier in calling out to God. That he's reminding God of the promises that he's made the nation of Israel. And he chose to anchor his perspective and his actions upon the word of God. See, friends, you and I both know that trouble in life is guaranteed to come. That we have all been there. We've all faced obstacles, perhaps even this morning on your way in, you received a a text or a phone call or an email aware of, of an issue that, that you weren't expecting or aware of a situation that, that, that you really had thought was resolved. And we know that, that life comes with problems. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, in talking about his life and the hardships and the struggles that he was facing, he describes it this way. He says that he was worn down, he was fatigued, he was weary. He said that he was feeling pressed on every side. At one point in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he even describes it. He says he, he feels like his life is, is a jar of pottery with pressure just squeezing, ready to snap it. That's how Paul describes his life and the struggles that he's facing. What we see with Paul and we, we see with Jehoshaphat and we can see in our lives is that the greatest result comes when we strengthen ourselves in God's word. When we strengthen ourselves in God's word, it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'm going to read God's word to get my time done and to spend time with him, but rather it's allowing our perspective to be submitted to his perspective. It's allowing our mindset to be submitted to his wisdom. It's allowing our, our outlook to be shifted to how God's outlook is on things. It's recognizing his way, his pattern. The scriptures give us a picture and a pattern of the nature of God and how he works in situations how he works in lives, and how he still moves on the behalf of people who call out to him and are desperate for him. We see that with Jehoshaphat, we see that with Paul, and we can see that in our lives. And one of the things that I think you and I should remember when we, we approach God's word and we spend time in scripture, that whenever we spend time in reading and couple it with prayer, that really time spent in God's word is time spent with Christ. It's time spent with him allowing him by his spirit to come and to shape us and to renew us and to refresh and restore us, just like Jesus would with his disciples when he would pull them aside and he would talk with them and he would really speak to them and challenge their perspectives and their, their focus on life and really renew them. That when you and I spend time in God's word, it's like the disciples spending time with Jesus, letting him speak to us and to challenge us and to draw us closer to him. As I've said before, and I just encourage you going into this new year, your, your strength, you'll always be only as strong as your commitment to God's word. That you'll always only be as strong as your commitment to God's word. So don't wait until the hardship comes. Don't wait until the challenge comes. Don't wait until the difficulty comes. Let your heart and the roots of your heart grow deep into God's word and in his perspective. Just learn to, fast, to feast deeply on God's word and the truth of his word. Find a pattern, find a rhythm, and I know that there's a number of different reading plans out and available, and I know of a number of individuals who often try to read the whole Bible through in one year, and I think that is a very uh, commendable thing for those who do. 
The goal that I would encourage you to do is not dive into a reading plan that has you focused on just accomplishing so many chapters each and every day, but rather focus on something that allows your heart to be systematically exposed to the nature of who God is so that when you're done reading, you don't just close it and you're thinking, well, what did I just read beyond just six chapters that I can now check off? But rather you can walk away thinking, this is who God is. This is how he works. This is how he changes my life. And this is how the truth of who he is applies to my life today. And I love the different apps and the different Bible study tools that are there. Over the years, I've seen some that are designed for fast-paced life where it's a verse and a quick devotional or even it's, it's drive time that you can listen to scripture while you're there. But what you and I need to remember that all of the different supplements and things that, that all take a small piece of scripture and then, and then expound upon it for our lives and we use that in the busyness of our lives, whether it be driving or, or a quick break and you're, you're reading that, that those are meant to supplement our regular intake and exposure to God's word in our lives. Those, those are not meant to replace it. That your, your devotional life, your growing near to Christ, should not be based upon exposure to Scripture that is as long as your commute to work. It really should be undistracted, unhindered time spent in God's Word. Those extras, those things, and those plans, and they're all good. So I'm not, please don't think I'm, I'm knocking them. I don't want you to send me emails thinking, is this one okay? Is this one okay? I'm not. If it's exposing your heart to God's Word, it's good, but it's not meant to replace you're diving in and spending time in God's word. I think the best way to look at all those different plans that are there would be to look at it like fast food. That you, you'll run to Subway, you'll run to McDonald's, you'll run to Taco Bell, you'll run to Chipotle, you'll run to some of these fast food places when, when time is of the essence and you need to get there, you need to get something in your belly, you need to get going. But you don't live on McDonald's, you don't live on Taco Bell, you don't live on Subway. If you do, then join us in the fast. But you don't live on those because if you do, your system becomes unhealthy. And there's all sorts of side effects that flow out of that, that lack of balance in your life. And so it is when our lives, when we only allow our time with God to be limited to these little exposures, whether it be a little devotional here, a little devotional there, then what we're doing is we're treating our relationship with God much like we would treat our diet going to McDonald's every day. Rather, spend time, come up with a way so that you can systematically expose your heart and your life to God's word. If, if you're needing help, I would say start in the New Testament and just read a chapter, learning about Jesus. And then taking and pausing with our kids, we'll pause and we'll just say, what's one thing that stood out to you? What's one thing that you can take and look for in life and you can apply to your life, but allowing our hearts and our lives to be exposed to God's word so that when the hardship comes, when the storm comes, when the difficulty comes, we already have our root system anchored in who he is rather than in who we are and the situation we're facing. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, he says, when, when we're tempted and weary, he says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He saw value in strengthening our souls and our minds and our perspectives in God's word. And then the last thing I would just, I would give you that we see with Jehoshaphat was it not only a commitment to prayer, not only was there a commitment to God's word, but the third thing we see is a commitment to worship. Look with me. Let's read, let's read more of this story. Diving into verse 15. So they've just received the, this word. This man is sharing this prophetic word and he says this. Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. 
They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. So just pause there for a second. Jehoshaphat received word of this vast army coming. His first response was going to God in prayer. And if you look at the beginning of his prayer, his prayer began with worship. Now God answers the prayer, and Jehoshaphat, again, his first response is worship. And then verse 19, then some Levites from the Korathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord and God of Israel with a very loud voice. Now their enemy is close, and they're raising their voice in worship and in thanksgiving to God. And then verse 20, early in the morning. Now, have you ever had an assignment that you needed to do, a task you did not look forward to doing? How many of you would set your alarm at four or five in the morning to get up and do that assignment? Most would probably put it off to the last minute, a chance to get to it later down the day, in the day, as, as far as you could finally get to it, something that you would not look forward to. But it says, Jehoshaphat set his alarm early in the morning. They left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, in other words, they moved in unison. Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went. But at the head of the army, they went as they went at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. When we see in the story, as I've already highlighted, Jehoshaphat begins with worship. When God answers, he worships. And then he gets up early in the morning, sets worshipers at the front of the army, and goes to face the enemy. What I find to be most fascinating in this story is that there's nowhere in the scripture, nowhere where God answers Jehoshaphat, that he tell him to put worshipers in front of the army. There's not one point where God said, hey, start with the worshipers. I think that would probably be the, sun, the Sunday I would, I would be thankful that I was not the worship pastor because that would be really going off of what he's thinking to do rather than sensing that this is something that God has said to do. But we see that Jehoshaphat puts the worshipers at the very front of the army. And as he puts them at the front of the army, the only thing that, that he's really declaring, they're saying, God, this is your fight. It's not mine. In other words, his act of worship was a step of faith. It was a step of faith long before they saw the answer. They chose to worship before the physical victory. So it was much easier to worship on the, af the backside of the victory. They began to worship long before they saw their answer. And I would just suggest for many here, as you're waiting for a breakthrough, you're waiting for an answer. You're waiting for a solution to come to, to needs and challenges and obstacles. Perhaps it's in, in your family or loved ones. As you're waiting for God to move and waiting for him to break through, I would encourage you to, to, in your waiting, fill it with worship. In your waiting, fill it with thankfulness, at, at his, with promises of his word, even before you see God come through and answer. I want to show you one more last thing in the story, and then we'll close with prayer. It's found in verse 26. 
Verse 26 says this. So the victory comes. If you read the whole story, the army turns on each other, kills each other down to the last two men who are, who are left standing. They find a way to both kill each other and they're done. So that when Jehoshaphat and the army arrives on the scene, it says all the army is dead. And there's, just, there's nothing but spoils of war to be collected and, and valuable things to be taken back to the enemy. So in other words, the enemy comes to plunder Judah. And in the end, Judah plunders the enemy. But I want you to see what happens in verse 26. On the fourth day, they assembled. So after they've been four days to clean up behind the enemy, all the, the things that they left. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, where they praised the Lord. That is why it is called the Valley of Barak today. That, that, that name, that Valley of Baraka, that name is that Barak is a Hebrew word and it means praise. And the point is that the, the very battlefield that they went to, because of how God routed the enemy and how God came through and how he broke through for them, that the very place where the enemy came against them, that very battleground became a place of worship and thanksgiving and praise so that that's what it became remembered for. And so I just encourage you, look for ways in 2020 where God might take your battlefield, he might take your place where you're needing breakthrough, and he can turn it into a place of worship, a place of thanksgiving, and a place of, a place of praise. It might be over an unsaved loved one who you have been praying over for years and years that you may find yourself in 2020 thanking God and worshiping him because they have come to Christ. For others, it might mean a breakthrough in the workplace, it might, whatever it might be. Whatever your need might be, those, those answers that have eluded you, that you may find yourself in 2020 because of the answer and the breakthrough that God brings on your behalf, that you find yourself in a place of worship and thanksgiving, and he'll bring you back to the beginning of the year and remind you of how you began to worship him and thank him long before the answer began to come. And so I just encourage you, friends, this morning, that very place that has been your battleground can become a place of worship and thanksgiving and praise as we turn our hearts and our lives towards him. And so what I would love to do this morning is to end things just a bit different. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. And I would love to end. I wanna do, I'll just tell you what we're gonna do and then who would ever love to join me around front, you're welcome to come. But what I would love to do this morning is end putting into practice some of what we've talked about this morning. And that is that expression of worship and gratitude and thanksgiving to God and, and really it coming from a heart of expressing gratitude to God. And so in just a second, I'm gonna invite as many as would wanna come to come and just gather in around the front and we'll be around the front together. And then the first thing what I wanna do is for us come together and we thank him and worship him for his faithfulness. And by starting with the answers to prayer that you've seen in 2019, to look over this past year, and perhaps you're recognizing his faithfulness. Perhaps it's been he's seen you through a very difficult season in your health. Perhaps there's been something financial that shifted in your life that, that really was a massive breakthrough. Perhaps it has something to do with family or even something beyond of what I'm talking about this morning. But my goal is that we start there and we just, in our own way, express to God, say, God, thank you. Thank you for answering this prayer. Thank you for demonstrating your goodness to me in this area. Thank you for, and you can begin to just cover through that and just lifting up God for who he is and the way he's come through. And then the second thing, this is where I'd love for us to end. So first we'll focus on 2019. And then I want to end by focusing forward on 2020. And as we focus on the coming year, many here could think about answers that you need 
situations that need intervention, unsaved loved ones who don't know Christ, transitions in your life that need to take place, and the list could be endless, broken, broken relationships, all the things that you're seeing and saying, God, boy, if you did this in 2020, this would be amazing. And then as you think about those needs, not to present them to God as saying, God, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, but to focus not so much on the need or the answer that you need, but to focus on God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love and his care and the way that he has demonstrated himself faithful to come through. Does that make sense? So can I just invite as many as would want to come, come, let's gather on the front and then we'll just lift our voices to God in worship and thanksgiving. It's really just coming with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving so that we can worship God together. And then I'll dismiss those who need to go in just a minute.